Welcome. You're listening to The Drive Podcast, a ministry of First Baptist Orlando. In our current series, we are walking through the letter of Philippians as the Apostle Paul writes to encourage the people of Philippi to live out their faith with joy and in unity. Let's listen in and see what God has in store for us. Philippians chapter 4, we finally arrived. Amen. Yeah, I heard that. Uh Uh-huh. I had one of my serve leaders say, listen, Cameron, I am Philippianed out. What I wanted to say was, listen, you can't use the word Philippian as a verb, okay? But I feel you, girl. We are almost done. Philippians chapter 4. We're only going to need about eight weeks to get through this chapter. No, I'm just playing. Uh, maybe. I don't know yet. I don't know. Uh, it's been a good ride, though, man. There have been so much throughout this letter written by this guy named Paul to Christians in the city of Philippi. And we said this all along. And I'm going to keep saying it because I want this to stick in your brains, that Philippians is the story of the Jesus who indwelt Paul, who now indwells us. And so this kind of joyful, victorious living that Paul exemplifies all throughout this book is possible for us. Not because we get to go out and try hard to be like Paul, but because the very same Jesus that equipped and empowered Paul to live victoriously has come and taken permanent residence inside of our spirits. And so now we have the very same life, the same source, and the same supply to press into to be able to experience what Paul experienced so that we can give expression to the same life that Paul gave expression to. We started this series uh, on June 28th, like four and a half months ago. I think that's because I camped out on one verse far too many times. But when we opened up this series, we just hung out on Philippians chapter 1 verse 21. What I'm convinced is the hinge verse for the entire letter. And there Paul writes, for to me, very, very unique Greek construction. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's almost like he issues both a question and a challenge all rolled up in one. I don't know what living means for you. I don't know what what living the life would be defined by you. But for me, living means Christ. Jesus isn't just his rescuer. He's not just his savior. He's not just his Lord. But Jesus is his very source and supply of everything. His vision, his beginning and his end, his means along the way. Jesus is Paul's life. The life in which he lives by, the life in which he is learning to give expression to. For Paul, everything was about Jesus. Jesus was his standard for valuation. Everything in his life was, what is Jesus' relationship to this thing? Because that becomes my relationship to this thing. And so when living means Christ, which is what living should mean for any of us who have claimed Jesus as our Lord and Savior, when living means Christ, then Christ will in us bear witness to himself in very specific ways. And that's what we're going to see in this fourth chapter of Philippians as Paul finally tries to start landing this plane. And in a word, what we see in chapter four of Philippians is stability. When living means Christ, there will be stability because the life of Christ is and was a life of stability. This chapter is a real good picture of what a mature Christian looks like, a maturing Christian. 
how a maturing and stable Christian thinks, how they process their thoughts, how they deal with their emotions and their feelings, how they, how they interpret and encounter and deal with different circumstances that are going on in their life. And there are four distinct witnesses to the stable life that we're going to see in Philippians. Four different expressions, four witnesses of what the stable life looks like. We're going to see the witness of joy, the witness of peace, the witness of contentment, and the witness of strength. And so in a word, chapter four is all about stability, which begs the question, what do you hear in this phrase? Man, that guy or that gal is stable. That is a person of stability. What comes to mind? Finances, okay, can I borrow a dollar, please? (laughs) Stability, stable, what comes to mind? Strength, okay. Solid, okay. Knowledge, yeah, absolutely. Organized, organized, firm, right? Strong, you said, resolute, foundational, unshakable, maybe balanced, balanced. Anybody ever have a wee fit? I was like 86 years old, guys. That's, that's what it told me my balance was, way off. All right, forget that. An ability to weather the storm, right? Whatever is going on. I'm a Florida boy, born and raised, okay? So I know all about hurricanes. I don't know anything about earthquakes. Anybody live through an earthquake? Yeah? Okay, yeah, I don't envy you guys at all whatsoever. In the book of Revelation, in chapter two and three, the apostle John is writing letters to seven different churches uh, in the book of Revelation. There's nothing really uh, significant about the seven churches. They were actually on the postal route in Asia Minor, okay? And so one of those churches was the church of Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. And we learned from one of the early historians, Strabo, that that the city of Philadelphia was prone to earthquakes. It was in a region of massive earthquakes. In 8017, Philadelphia was completely destroyed by a massive earthquake. So is Sardis, one of the other seven cities, including 10 other cities in that region. And so the city was rebuilt, but a lot of the people weren't interested in living in the city anymore. They kind of moved out to the rural areas. And those who did live in the city, man, they got out of Dodge as soon as they felt a slight tremor. The Spirit of God writes to the church in Philadelphia, these words in Revelation 3.12. He writes, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. Often the only parts in a city that was left standing after a severe quake, especially in the ancient Near East, were these huge stone temple columns, right? Because they were thick and they were rooted in the ground and they were wide and strong and firm and resolute. And Christ promises the believers in Philadelphia that he is going to set them in his temple in such a secure fashion that no disturbance would ever force them to rubble again. It's, it's why we sing, it, it's on Christ, the solid rock we stand. Because everything else really is sinking sand. And I think we could talk from experience, those of us who have tried to live our lives on a different kind of foundation than Jesus and found that there is nothing but instability. And so chapter four of Philippians, I mean, Paul is presenting to us this promise of stability that works itself out through these different witnesses. And who doesn't want stability, right? 
Who doesn't want firmness and, and unshakableness in their life? We've all known people who have lacked stability, I think. I mean, we've been those people. Let's be real. Some of y'all are those people still. Sometimes I walk in instability. And I've been trying to think of a way to describe the unstable or instable person. And, and the only, only image I can get is chaff. Anybody know what chaff is? Okay, y'all are giggling, so I definitely don't want to hear from that table. Uh, In biblical days, there was no machinery in the fields, right? So after harvest, okay, the grain would be brought in and you would separate the edible part of the grain from the hard sheaves and the inedible chaff by beating it. Okay, and so you would beat it with, with hammers or you would bring in oxen or you'd bring in cattle and they would trample on it over and over again. And they would do this in this large, flat, hard area called the threshing floor. And then when, when the grain was threshed, okay, and the cereal part of the grain that you could eat was separated from the chaff, you'd come in with a winnowing fork and you'd pick up the mixture and throw it up high in the air and the wind would come along and it would carry away the chaff. Because chaff was very light and insubstantial and insignificant almost. And it was easy for it to just be carried away. There wasn't a lot of weight to it. And unstable people, people of instability are very much like chaff. Now don't get me wrong, they have intrinsic value because God has created them in his very image, yet because of their, I don't know, flightiness, double-mindedness, Their lack of substance, they're easily blown from side to side. They're easily sidelined. They're hard to take serious. You know people like this. Some of you are these people. (laughs) Unstable in finances and stewardship and managing money. In relational uh, relationships, in, in your thought life, there's instability in your feelings and your emotions, in your practices and your behaviors and your thought patterns. A lot of that comes from living in a fallen and broken world. A lot of that comes from a lack of Christian discipleship and maturity. And so Paul wants us to know and to see what it looks like to be firmly and deeply rooted in Christ. This is who Paul is describing for us as we get into the fourth chapter here. That when living means Christ, the expression of that life will be a life that is stable. And it's witnessed through joy, peace, contentment, strength. Okay, let's dive in. Let me pray. Father, speak. Make sense of your word. Uh, Father, that supernatural part needs to happen now. uh, Where you allow my words uh, to somehow speak to spirit of the people in this room. Father, we trust your word. That it has the power to transform and renew and conform our hearts, to change the the patterns of thought in our mind. And so, Lord, help me to hide behind your word. Make me small and make your truth big. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter four, verse one. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord my beloved. In this way, stand firm. Which way? Well, verse four, we get to the first way, but first we got to get past the conflict of two and three. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because you've met these ladies in chapter four, verse two before. Remember, Yodia and Syntyche, these two sisters in the Lord who are at the middle of some of the relational fuss going on in Philippi. 
These two ladies, they had a disagreement. We don't know what the disagreement was. All we know is that Paul calls them to work in harmony together. It's what he says. I urge Yodi and Syntyche to walk and to live in harmony together. Paul doesn't choose a side here. He calls them to work it out. He calls the body to come around them to love and champion them towards unity and harmony. And the reason I'm not going to spend a lot of time here is because the next series we're going to go to is going to be all about relationships and the lies that end up ruining our relationships. So I don't want to talk about relational conflict too much. We'll get there, I promise. Suffice to say that Paul wisely presses these ladies to end this matter, not by choosing a side, but by describing what a godly and honoring person who champions unity and harmony, how they would act, what they would do in the midst of relational conflict. And he does it by pointing back to Jesus. The example of Jesus in chapter two, as well as the source and the supply of Jesus's life. Because remember, Jesus is the only chance we as, as, a, as a people, as humans have of experiencing true unity and genuine harmony. Jesus Christ is the only one who does that. So let's pick up in verse four. Look at this first witness of stability, joy. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. Always. And in case you missed it the first time, again, he says, I will say rejoice. This is a great churchy idea. Ridiculously hard to work out in your life. Because Paul doesn't say rejoice when things are good, right? He doesn't say rejoice when circumstances are all in your favor, but always. And always carries with it the very real possibility Better yet, the very real probability of tragedy and trial and suffering and hardship. Because let's be real, we live in a fallen and broken world and none of us are exempt from hardship and trial and tragedy and suffering. Especially those of us who are called to Jesus. I mean, Jesus was a man of great sorrows who didn't have a place to put his head and we're asking God to conform us into his image. Why wouldn't God take us at his, our word and create us to be more like Jesus? We're going to experience hardship and trial. Um, if you're new to the drive or, you know, you haven't heard me share any of, of our story, my wife and I, tragedy is nothing new in our life either. We've experienced our own setbacks and our own tragedy and suffering in the midst of a fallen and broken world, um, just like the next person. Our, our families walked through infertility um, for years. Uh, we're still infertile. Um, as far as a medical professional would say, my wife's womb is dead. And so because of infertility, we have experienced incredible, incredible loss. Four times my wife's womb has begun life and then terminated life. And so we have experienced again and again and again heartache. We lost uh, two twin boys, our first loss. And then we lost a, a little girl that we named Naomi from the book of Ruth. Because the book of Ruth is really about Naomi. And Naomi is all about learning to open up her hands and let God take out and put in whatever he wants. And then we lost a fourth baby. We didn't know whether it was a, a boy or a girl. And we didn't know how to rejoice in the midst of that process, right? And while you may not have experienced infertility or that kind of stuff, listen, life is hard. This is the real stuff that we all deal with. And we've all experienced 
horrible things and tragedy and suffering and loss, uh, whatever it looks like in some way, shape, or form. I mean, every one of us can have our entire world unhinged with a phone call, right? With one diagnosis, with one car accident, with one whatever, fill in the blank. We're not exempt from tragedy. And so we all need help to rejoice always. And thank God help is present. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Your translation may say, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Stop there. Okay, the help hasn't arrived yet. Um, because if you were to appeal to my reasonableness and my gentleness after another miscarriage, after another loss, after another deferred hope of the godly desire of parenting, there is no reasonableness or gentleness for me to find, okay? But the reasonableness and gentleness that Paul speaks of is not built on or predicated by whatever the circumstance is. You get that, right? It's never our circumstances that should breathe reasonableness or gentleness or even rejoicing out of us. The reasonableness or the gentleness is built on the next group of words. Look at verse five again. Let your gentle spirit, let your reasonableness be known to all men. Why? Because the Lord is near. Because the Lord is at hand. How can mature Christians demonstrate stability through rejoicing always? And demonstrating reasonableness and gentleness, they can do it because in the midst of any circumstance, any crisis, they are always at home in the love of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. How do I know that? Look at verse 4. Rejoice where? In the Lord. Psalm 90, the only psalm ever attributed to Moses blows my mind that Moses wrote a psalm and it got put into the Bible. This is how he opens that psalm. Oh Lord, you have been our dwelling place for all generations. Isn't that, isn't that raw? Moses, who never actually had a home of his own. He was born, put in a wicker basket, ended up in Pharaoh's court, and then was in the wilderness for the rest of his life. And because of his sin, he never got into the promised land. And yet Moses says, oh Lord, you have been our dwelling place for all generations. And Moses never experienced what we experience. Moses may have had the spirit of God come and light upon him every now and then and empower him. We have the very spirit of God that comes and literally calls us home. God comes and dwells in us. We are in the Lord. We are in Christ. Do you remember how this letter started back in Philippians chapter 1 verse 1? Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to the saints who are in Christ, who are in Philippi. You remember that point? You are always in Christ before you are ever anywhere else. You are always in Christ before we were ever at a diagnosis of infertility. We were in Christ before we were ever at a place of unbearable grief and pissed off at God for seemingly starting life and then murdering life. I mean, those are the kinds of things we were thinking and struggling with through that season of loss in our lives. Good thing is God's chest is big enough both to beat on and then to fall into and embrace. He can take your ugly. He's good at it. We are in Christ. And because we are in Christ before we are ever anywhere else, we can rejoice always. And so Paul's imperative here is that the believer is to rejoice always in the Lord. 
Now, joy, joy, if we, if we had to define it, here's the definition after a decade of ministry. Joy is the resolute assurance that God is still seated on the throne and that he still owns a cattle on a thousand hill and he knows what you need. Better yet, he knows when you need it. And he has promised to meet your needs faithfully according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Look at chapter four, verse 19. If you got a Bible, just, just look at verse 19. This is what Paul says. He says, and I know that my God shall supply your needs according to his riches and glory that are in Christ Jesus. I promise y'all. I've said this before. God's in the business of redefining our definition of need though. You need to be open to that. And where are his riches? They're in Christ. Where are you? In Christ. Do you see the correlation here? We can rejoice. Now, Paul's not ignoring the fact that life sucks sometimes and that our circumstances are overwhelming. Do you remember where dude is at? Thank you. I only say it once every week. (laughs) Paul's in prison. He's under house arrest. He's chained to a guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He doesn't know if he's going to get out of prison. And yet Paul is evidence that circumstances never get the final word. We can truly rejoice because we are always in Christ. And if it wasn't enough that Paul was in prison, man, when you get home later, maybe when you go out to dinner afterwards, go, go peep 2 Corinthians chapter 11 as he's defending his apostleship and he writes about what he's experienced. The beatings, the 39 lashes minus one from the Jews. That means 40 lashes kills you. The imprisonments, the shipwrecks, a night and day at sea, gone without food, gone without water, been naked, been cold, been exposed. Paul's like, listen, I know all about the ungood. That's why he could write in Romans eight twenty eight, and I know that God causes all things to work together for good. Doesn't mean that all things are good. My mother-in-law chastises me every time something bad happens and I say, it's, it's all good. She's like, no, it's not. It's not all good. It's rarely all good, but God knows how to work all things for good. Paul could say that because he had experienced a lot of ungood. And so we can rejoice always because we are in Christ. And we can be confident that God is at work even when we don't seal it, see it, or we don't feel it. Which I'm so grateful because look here. I take great comfort that the command here is to do something, not feel something. Can I get an Amen. Y'all don't need to feel joyful. You don't need to feel like rejoicing. You're told to rejoice. That takes a discipline. And there's something about choosing to rejoice in the midst of feeling like not doing it that overrides our thinker and our feeler. And man, there is something about that that elevates our affections to a place where we can finally see down on the momentary light affliction of what we're experiencing. But it's a discipline. It's stability. It's what comes out of a man or a woman who is walking and growing in Christ, being dominated by the spirit and whose roots grow deep into Jesus Christ, who though they are swayed, they know that I can rejoice in the midst of whatever I am walking through. And as we rejoice always, listen, as we rejoice always, as we walk out this practice, this sweet reasonableness and gentle spirit will be on full display to a world that does not know how to deal with brokenness and grief and fallenness in this world. Yesterday, Monday, I was down in Sebring. A mentor of mine lost his wife. They were on the missions field for 40 years, married for 47 years. 
And while it was a funeral, it, it was a celebration of this woman's life. We celebrated because she's with Jesus now. And while that doesn't completely take away the sting of loss and death, have you been to a funeral where no one knows Jesus? There's no celebrating. There's no hope. There is a defeated, broken fallenness that is just full of dejection. But we don't grieve as those who grieve who don't have hope. And so as we learn to encounter grief and deal with brokenness and tragedy and crisis and setbacks and lost jobs and cancer diagnoses and miscarriages, and we rejoice always, I promise you, the world around you will see something in you that is completely foreign. And they will say, man, I, I don't know how you're doing this. That's when you could say, man, it's, it's Jesus. It's Jesus in me that is empowering me to not allow my circumstances to overcome because I know that there is victory and my God is painting on a canvas larger than I can see. And it was after our third miscarriage that we finally began to, to feel that, that there, was, there was goodness in God and that he was working something in the midst of this. And then after our fourth miscarriage, I mean, God gave us a very powerful passage in Psalm 27, verse 13. It says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That wasn't a promise for kids. What that was was a promise that Jesus Christ himself is sufficient for us. And so we started to just praise God and say, okay, maybe we're supposed to be spiritual parents. And I'm so grateful that we got to that place before we got a call about Cora Jane, our four-year-old daughter that we got to adopt that totally came out of the blue. And if any of you guys were here at our Halloween this last Friday night, she totally owned the stage during the lip sync battle. Thank you, Aaron, for giving her a microphone. But we learn to trust that God is good and rejoice in his goodness. Because let's be honest, if salvation alone was all that God ever did for us, rescuing us from sin and death and slavery and bondage to sin, isn't that enough? It is if you really know and understand the pervasiveness of your sin and your wretchedness and your wickedness. And you've really tasted the goodness of God. Now, how do we do this? What does this look like? Well, for, for me, rejoicing always in the context of, say, Korah, it's, it's learning to run the events of her adoption through my head again and again and again. When I, when I get sad about our losses, it's learning to, to thank God for sparing her life, for bringing her into our family, the myriad of ways she's enriched our lives. And my goal is to so inundate the hard stuff with the good stuff that by the time I'm finished, I'm once again, I'm up here and I'm seeing things from a different vantage point. And while I'm up there, man, my sights are elevated rightly. I can begin thanking God for his goodness to me, his goodness to my wife, for his promises and his character and his sovereignty sovereignty in my life. And I'm reminded that while everything else in my life can and probably will change, the Lord does not change. And while every other source of joy for me might dry up, Jesus Christ is that deep well of abiding joy. And so the more we learn to practice this kind of rejoicing, the less overwhelming and intimidating the always becomes. 
till we learn to rejoice. Stability in the life of the redeemed will demonstrate itself in the witness of joy through the practice of rejoicing. Second witness of stability is peace. And no, we're not getting through all four tonight. Second witness is the stability of, of stability is peace. When living means Christ, we will both have and know peace. Look at verse six and seven. Be anxious for only a couple things. Be anxious for the really hard things like money or be anxious about who your who your significant other. No, be anxious for nothing. That's hard too. How many of y'all experience anxiety? Look, my wife experienced and endured panic attacks for years. I know the kind of crippling power that they can have. I know what anxiety can do. Paul says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Supplication is another word for petitions, direct requests by supplication with thanksgiving. You miss that thanksgiving, you will never experience the peace of God. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding or comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Over 400 times in the Bible, there's a reference to peace. And tell you what, it's never totally defined. It's never defined. So I'm not going to try to do what God in his wisdom has not done for us through his word. But over and over again, peace is illustrated. What's a story that comes to mind where you see and experience the peace of God in the Bible? Anything jump out? Paul? Absolutely. The whole book of Philippians? Yeah. What's that? Taming the sea, Jesus, asleep, Mark chapter four, verse 32, sleeping, head on a pillow, right? In the midst of a storm. Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, right? Come on, like dudes got peace because the spirit of God came and shut the, the mouths of the lions. What's that? Yeah. Uh, I don't see peace there. I mean, maybe he was at peace, but I don't know. Good one. Mm, yeah. They're in there dancing. Dancing with one that looked like the son of God. I'm claiming that's Jesus. I believe that that's Jesus. Joseph. Joseph yes. Constantly. Up and down, up and down, up and down. Talk about a roller coaster. And look, all of these stories, they demonstrate for us the reality that peace doesn't have much to do with our external circumstances, Right? which means that peace is absolutely available in the midst of hard stuff, especially in the midst of anxiety and worry and uncertainty. And peace for us, it comes on the backside of a choice. And what is the choice according to verse six? It is to allow our anxiety to drive us to thankful prayer and petition. Let's be honest, where does your anxiety usually drive you to? To finagling how you can make ends meet how you can set this up or network this situation or talk to this person or make this happen or buy a bunch of this stuff and sell it on eBay. And come on, our anxiety drives us in a hundred different places than to thankful petition and prayer. Maybe eventually it does. The, the first response should be, 
Oh, man, I'm starting to feel really anxious. My palms are getting sweaty. My stomach is in a knot. Oh, that's the call to worship. Thank you, Father. I'm going to allow that to be an escort into thankfulness that God promised to meet my needs. And I'm going to begin to pray and petition him for whatever it is that I need. And for me, the most significant part of this command is the promise, the witness of God's peace. Men and women of God who are stable, who walk in stability, allow their anxiety, their uncertainty, their doubt, drive them to thankful prayer and petition. And the reason, of course, Paul can say be anxious for nothing is because he knew the sufficiency of grace. Over and over again, he knew the provision of God, even when and especially when the provision was simply God's presence, not the stuff he thought he needed. You do know that sometimes what you need is not what you think. It's God's presence which is always promised. Sometimes we want God's hand, not God himself. And so God lets whatever's in his hand fail us so that we can be reminded that we need him. And the peace here, it surpasses all comprehension. Listen, peace is not the absence of conflict. It's not the cessation of activity. Peace is a person. John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's head towards the cross and he says this, these things I've spoken to you, talking to the disciples, so that in me, you might have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. Where's peace found according to this passage? In Jesus. Where are we at? In Christ. Should peace ever elude children of God? tribulations, promise, trial, hardship, crisis, we're going to experience those things. But when we try to make our home in the world and try to find our peace in the created realm, then trial and tragedy will consistently work fear and anxiety in our hearts. It will. Your peace is not in anything created. It is only in the uncreated God who is the Prince of Peace, Isaiah chapter 9. The one who comes and is our peace in the midst of the storm. So the witness of peace, it is on the single-minded life. The one who never forgets that Christ is our peace. And that avenue into this peace is thankful prayer and petition. And then there's one more way of bringing this peace into our life. Look at verse 8 and then we'll finish. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Listen to me, men and women. This right here is the mind of Christ. This is how Jesus thinks. Always and consistently. And 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says that we have received the mind of Christ. Let that, let that marinate for a second. We have received the very mind of Christ. And I've said this before in, 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 in a roundabout way, but let me, let me try to say it really directly. If there's a thought that enters into your mind that is in contradiction to Philippians 4 verse 8, that thought is a lie generated by an enemy and it is sown by him. And you have the power of God to reject that thought, take it captive, and turn it over to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. But if you don't and you marry your will to that thought, you will take that down every fantasy, and it will run through your mind, and you will create and concoct all kinds of things. And before you know it, man, that lie has become yours. That thought has become yours. There's a very small threshold 
to take thoughts captive. Paul calls them in Ephesians 6, flaming arrows of the evil one. We have the mind of Christ. And so we learn to take every thought and we begin to run it through this grid. Is this pure? Is this right? Is this holy? Is this of good repute? Is this praiseworthy? Is this thing excellent? If not, then it's sown by an enemy and I can reject it. Some of us have for so long married our will to whatever thought pops into our head. And it takes a discipline to learn to take those thoughts captive. Sin begins in the mind and in the heart. And as soon as we take that thought in and we make it our own, man, lust is conceived, James chapter one. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin gives birth to death every time. Every time we make a sinful choice, something dies. Usually what dies is the opportunity to express the life of Christ in that moment through trust or faith or whatever. We have an adversary who is consistently sowing thoughts of destruction and doubt and peace is learning to recognize those thoughts that don't belong to those who possess the mind of Christ. Got any Hunger Games fans in here? Okay, just y'all. I mean real Hunger Games fans. Because I mean, I've read the trilogy like way too many times, okay? Uh, Y'all have read the books? Yeah, okay. So uh, I'm just talking to y'all. You remember that part where PETA... He, uh, he's, he's been tracker jacked. This ain't gonna make sense to none of y'all if you ain't seen it. But he's been tracker jacked and he comes back and him and Katniss are kind of like trying to come out of that fog and, and trying to restore some kind of a relationship. And Peter talks about, he recognizes those thoughts, those lies that have been planted by the enemy. They're kind of, they're kind of like fuzzy and kind of bright around the edges and they're kind of bubbly. And it's a ridiculous uh, 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 analogy, but the point is Peter could recognize the lies of the enemy. They didn't look like the other thoughts that were in his head. They were lies sown by the enemy. And the same is true for us. The enemy is consistently sowing thoughts into our minds that don't belong. And the man or the woman of stability is able to take that thought and run it through this grid. And I promise you, you begin to discipline yourself and memorize Philippians 4, 8 and put it up on the mirror and put it in your car and put it on your phone. When a thought that is inconsistent with who you are in Christ pops into your mind, is that right? Is that true? Is that excellent? Is that uh, praiseworthy? No, it's not. Get out of my head. That doesn't belong in the mind of one who has the mind of Christ. Paul says, dwell on these things, verse eight, dwell on them, park on them, meditate on them, filter your thoughts through this grid. And these are two practices to walk in stability and to know the witness of peace, thankful prayer and petition when anxiety rears its ugly head and dwelling on the right things. Listen, we all want to be stable believers, firm Christians, not blown to and fro by whatever circumstances come. We don't want to be flighty. We don't want to lack substance. And we don't need to because we have been joined to the very life of Christ who is not insubstantial. And so we learn to rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. And we learn to ride our anxiety into praise and to prayerfulness and to thanksgiving and to allowing our thoughts to be filtered through this grid. Listen, joy and peace aren't the only witnesses of the stable life, but they are two powerful ones that help us to persevere in the faith with maturity and steadfastness. Next week, we're gonna finish the letter of Philippians. 
And we're going to look at those last two witnesses of the stable life, contentment and strength. If you're not content with your life, make sure you come next week. It's probably not going to fix anything for you, but hopefully it's going to show you that contentment is not in your circumstances. It's in Jesus Christ. And strength, strength is ours in Christ to do what God has created and called you to do. Not to go win football games like Tim Tebow, but it's strength for whatever the call on your life is. All right, so let me pray. I want you to take the next 12 minutes. You've got some questions in the middle of your table, and then we will break out of here. If you're at a table that doesn't have a lot of people, move to another table, okay? Father, thank you for the witness of peace and the witness of joy. Thank you, Jesus, that you are both our peace and our joy. I pray, Father, that you and your spirit would be at work now at these tables as we take these questions and we dig a little deeper. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. We would love to see you on Tuesday night, 7 p.m. in the Student Center at First Baptist Orlando. You can check us out on Facebook. It is the easiest way to get in touch with us and find out what is going on in our ministry.